With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guaranteed. Visit ebay.com for terms. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on Donate? What? Charles Darwin. Welcome, everybody, back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm your host, Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And as of today, we are down to our last four teams standing in the NFL playoffs. So, obviously, we're going to preview the upcoming conference championship games for much of this episode. But we're going to start things off, Logan, talking about the four teams that did not make it past this last weekend. And talking about really what they need to take away from their losses going forward. So, let's go first to the Saints. What should they be taking away from their loss last weekend? Uh, they should they should be really happy. I mean, they've managed to stay extremely competitive while still successfully rebuilding for the future. And honestly, I think their Super Bowl window is still very much open, Carson. Uh, this isn't to say that they have holes or players that they need to replace or old veterans. They are losing Drew Brees, but... Honestly, that might benefit the Saints with how his arm looked this season. You've got older guys like Emmanuel Sanders, 33, Jared Cook, 34. His contract is up at the end of the season. And their leading tackler this season, Demario Davis, is 31. But outside of these guys, the Saints are pretty much set. Um, I mean, you can you could make an argument that I should include Malcolm Jenkins and Janoris Jenkins in that, uh, 33 years old and 32. But uh, honestly, every other facet of their defense in this team is built for the future. Their secondary is young. Marshawn Lattimore is 24. Marcus Williams is 24. And Chauncey Gardner-Johnson is 23. Their defensive line is young and dominant as long as they can bring back Trey Hendrickson after this year. He's only 27, was a top five pass rusher this season. They've got other young talent on the D-line and Malcolm Brown and Marcus Davenport. But most importantly, this offensive line is still built for the future. They've drafted young. They got Cesar Ruiz, and I know he had his struggles. Every other player on this offensive line is a veteran and is ready to win some more games next season with Winston under center. They protected Drew Brees exceedingly well. Winston is a little more mobile, so protection isn't going to be an issue. And then the only other part I would say that the Saints need to focus on is they need to get a little bit younger in the receiving core, but when you have Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara, you don't ever really need to focus on skill position players. So my big takeaway from the Saints losing is you are still going to be an awesome team next year. Don't worry about losing Breeze. The rest of this team is built to win immediately. So I agree that this is a really talented roster, which is why my takeaway is maybe a little bit more aggressive than yours. I think, Logan, they should go in for Deshaun Watson. And you talk about them having Jameis this coming season. Obviously, they will have to sign him to a new contract. And I think that if he wants to get paid starter-level money, I don't know about that. This is a team that is really tied for cap space because of all the talented players that they're already committed to. And I think that... With your roster as currently constructed, the only thing holding you back is that elite quarterback play. I think it's the only thing that held them back this year. Otherwise, they probably would have been Super Bowl champions. So, this is my pitch for what they should give to the Texans. And I'm actually ripping this from the Saints SB Nation article that I read, but I thought that this was a pretty reasonable haul. So, it's Michael Thomas, Marcus Davenport, and a couple firsts. And I know that when you hear Michael Thomas, that can be a little bit overwhelming, but keep in mind this team did just win 12 games and a playoff game with a quarterback who couldn't throw downfield and without Thomas for nine of those games. And as exceptional as he is, he's not the kind of guy who's going to drive winning. You are going to be able to pick up probably at least one quality receiver in this draft with the depth of talent that there is there. You already have your Emmanuel Sanders. You bring back Jared Cook. And Alvin Kamara is one of the more unique receiving weapons that we have in this game. So to me... Yeah, that's obviously a meaningful loss. I'm not going to sit here and say that it isn't. But you are talking about a franchise, potentially top five quarterback in football who is just beginning his prime. 
Nothing else matters in the face of that. No amount of picks, no star skill position player on the perimeter compares to that. There is nothing that is not worth giving up for Deshaun Watson, at least within the realm of what I'm talking about here. And like I said, this is a Super Bowl defense that was one of the absolute best in football for the last 12 weeks of this season. And there is some really talented offensive personnel. The line is obviously really strong. So you get a Super Bowl quarterback in there and it's all worth it. And to me, sticking with Jameis would be like saying, we're okay being the team that we have been for the past few years, where we're this 12-win team that has these playoff disappointments. What are you afraid of? Why are you not pushing all your chips to the table? Like, yeah, you're really good, but it's also been a really disappointing last few years in some ways because all of that talent, all of that regular season success has amounted to nothing in the playoffs. You cannot tell me that the Saints with Deshaun Watson would not be the favorite out of the NFC. I think they honestly would probably be a very legitimate contender as compared to the Kansas City Chiefs, especially if they lose some pieces, which they're likely to do this offseason. So to me, the risk is 100% worth the reward because what even is the risk? You know what you're getting. Deshaun is a superstar, and that is what drives Super Bowls. Well, he's a top five quarterback in the NFL, and I agree in the sentiment that you should give up whatever, but if you're giving up Michael Thomas, you still think that two first-round picks are necessary? I think so. This is unparalleled. When have we seen a guy who is not only this young, but is this dominant at the quarterback position, and you have tied up for this long? He's extended through 2025. You have control over him once you get him in your organization. Absolutely. Khalil Mack got two first-rounders. We're talking about different levels of impact on the game here. This is the almost a Khalil Mack equivalent at quarterback. So absolutely, I think you give up what it takes. And Ultimately, this team is made up of 22 guys and losing Michael Thomas is not going to change everything. Adding Deshaun Watson very well could. So there's my Saints pitch. I think that you're right, though. This is a really good football team and they have been for some time, but there's a reason I was never confident in them as a true contender and it's 100% because of the quarterback position. And let me ask you, because Jameis is obviously a talented guy, but can anybody really get the reins on him? Can anybody you know, bring him to a position where he's actually an effective and reliable starting quarterback? Well, I think if there's a team that could do it, it would be New Orleans because of how they've ran this passing system with Drew Brees. They transitioned into him, uh, you know, fully going into small passing and slants and drags. He wasn't throwing the ball at all downfield. Uh, we even saw when Jameis came into the game where, where they took one deep shot. The defense was completely out of position. I think if there's going to be a team to do it, it's New Orleans. Let me ask you then this. If Deshaun goes to... New Orleans, if this goes through, what happens to Jameis? I think that he goes and finds some other destination. There will always be people who need quarterbacks. I just think the Saints are in a position where settling for an okay quarterback, an uncertain commodity, doesn't make sense. I think that there's a reason that they were resistant to paying Jameis. There's a reason they were resistant to playing Jameis. They chose Taysom Hill over him. And yes, maybe there's some contract incentives involved with that. But above all else, you're trying to win games. You're a contender. And they were not 100% convinced that Jameis was the guy to help them do that. If they were, I think there's a case to be made that Jameis should have been starting over Breeze. And obviously, that's incredibly difficult to do considering what he means to this franchise. But Breeze was just not that good. So yes, I think that if you give Sean Payton a quarterback who actually can throw the ball downfield, who can make magic happen outside of the pocket... You're not going to miss Michael Thomas all that much. It matters, but this is still a talented group of weapons and of Super Bowl roster that did not have a Super Bowl quarterback. Okay, so let's stick in the NFC now for a team that maybe fits that same billing with the Rams, who obviously fell at the hands of the Packers this past weekend. What should their takeaway be from that game? Uh, my takeaway is Jared Goff needs a lot of help to be a successful quarterback. And my initial take before I did this research was Jared Goff needs a running game. That's not true statistically, compared to what he got with Todd Gurley, yes, he does need a running game. I think that's very true. I think Jared Goff needs an elite offensive line, elite weapons, and an elite running game to be a successful quarterback. I think he's a lot closer to a guy like Baker Mayfield than he is like a Josh Allen. You know what I mean? He's He needs a lot of help. When he had Todd Gurley here, 3,800 yards, 28 touchdowns in 2017, number one offense in the league, and they had 11 100-yard rushing games. 2018, Gurley runs for 1,200 yards, Goff has 4,600 yards, 32 touchdowns. Again, 1,100-yard rushing games in the number two ranked offense. As Gurley falls off, 857 yards in 2019, Goff throws 12 picks. They have the number 11 offense. And then in 2020, this doesn't make any sense. Carson, they had 1,400-yard rushing games this season. It is simply inexcusable that the Rams were put into all of these difficult positions by Jared Goff turnovers. I mean, I would make the argument that a quarterback like Alex Smith, a quarterback uh, like... I don't know, someone who just doesn't turn the ball over. Jared Goff hurt this team more than he helped them this year. And 
It wasn't that he didn't have help. He got a lot from Malcolm Brown, Daryl Henderson, and Cam Akers. He just wasn't making plays. So my takeaway is you either need to build a super team around Jared Goff or you need to move off of him because I just, I genuinely think he makes this offense worse, Carson. Yeah, I agree. And I have a similar takeaway. I think that Goff is just not good enough and you need to figure it out now because the problem is you talk about moving off of him. I would love to do that if I were the Rams, but nobody's taking him in a trade, in my opinion, and they have two years left before they can cut him without just a brutal hit in dead cap. It'll only be like $8.6 or something at that point, but two more years of Jared Goff is not very appetizing to me, and I think that we've talked about some of the differences in his game this year between years past before. He used to throw downfield more, and maybe you empower him there. At the same time, if I'm Sean McVay, I'm a little bit scared to put the ball in Jared Goff's hands and say, okay, throw downfield more, take a few more risks. I think that maybe there's something mental here. Maybe you get him a good sports psychologist, but I just don't think he reads the field well. I think that he makes too many bad decisions. So let me ask you then, how do they proceed? Do they get a different quarterback in here? Do they restructure this roster? Because this line is great. This rushing attack was one of the absolute best in football this season. And Goff, although he didn't turn the ball over in their loss to the Packers, which was kind of exceptional that they ended up losing that game because as I shared last week in their last 15 games in which Goff had not turned the ball over they'd won every single one he didn't lose them the game in that way but he just didn't go out there and drive them down the field when they needed him to so what do they do how do they figure this out I genuinely don't know because you are handcuffed to this guy like you said nobody wants him and that's the most frustrating thing Carson is that this team is built to win immediately. As you said, this offensive line is elite because I made a really big argument last season that Jared Goff was not the issue in Los Angeles, that it was this offensive line. It's not the case. The Rams had one of the best pass-blocking and run-blocking offensive lines this year. They had the number one defense in football. It literally doesn't make sense that one guy could be this bad and be this detrimental to a team. So what I would do, throw it at the wall, man. Throw him in as many trades as you possibly can. Just offer him to desperate teams. Try to get off of him because he's just, he is bad for your offense. He is bad for your team. I, are there any quarterbacks in the market that you would go after in free agency? I mean, I don't think there are any that they can reasonably obtain while also having golf on the books because that's just way too much of your cap. I want to ask you this. Winston's a free agent this offseason. Would you rather have Jared Goff or Jameis Winston? That is a tough question. I would rather have neither. I think I would rather have Goff just because if we're going to criticize a guy for turning the ball over, I think that we should probably focus on the guy who had 30 interceptions in his last season. But I agree. They're in desperation mode. I thought about the potential of a Goff for Wentz trade. I don't know why the Eagles would do it, but to me, the upside of having that kind of talent, even after a disastrous campaign, Wentz, you could get out of his contract sooner if it doesn't work, but it may be that they just need to start looking to the draft sooner than we think and that they need to have their eyes on one of the guys in this pretty strong quarterback class right now because although you're paying golf for the next couple of years, you can get off. And when you can, I think that you should because this offense has the potential to be really good. This defense is the best in football and this team probably should have done more this season than they actually did. And I think that golf is a huge reason why they were held back a little bit. Okay. Let's jump over to the AFC then. The Baltimore Ravens, who are obviously coming off of their second consecutive season in which they've been an elite regular season team, especially towards the end of this year when they really got going, and then maybe disappointed some a little bit in the playoffs. What should their takeaway be from their loss to the Bills? The takeaway is exactly what you said. This playoff recipe just doesn't work. Carson, only two teams this year had more rushing attempts than passing attempts, the Titans and the Ravens. And I think the biggest issue with this offense is just that teams can game plan around that rushing attack. The Bills played Lamar Jackson and them perfectly. They stacked the linebackers right at the line of scrimmage. Milano, Klein, Edmonds, all of them right there in the middle. And once you stop that rushing attack, the Ravens have nothing else to rely on. So what do I suggest they do? Well, first, you do exactly what the Titans did. You draft big physical receivers that Lamar can just throw jump balls to because that's what he needs. He's not an accurate deep ball thrower. He's not... A, I wouldn't say he's an accurate thrower of the football past, you know, 15 yards downfield. So I think they need those guys. Honestly, even more than that, just throw the ball more. Like You have to make teams fear Lamar through the air. And the biggest issue with the offense, Carson, is that this team beats up on bad teams because it's what they're good at. They get up, they take a lead, they run the ball down your throats, and then they run the clock out. Against good football teams, as we've seen in the playoffs, the Bills, the Chiefs, it just doesn't work. So... If Harbaugh does not change this offense at all, if they come out and you're still running the same read option plays and beating up on these teams, they're not going to win a playoff game. That's the ultimate goal. It's like Giannis in the regular season. It's, I equate the two teams. 
They can beat up anybody in the regular season because it works then. But when it gets gritty and teams make defensive adjustments like the Bills do, like teams do in the playoffs against Giannis, you're not going to win games because it's a pretty easy formula to counter. So I agree with your takeaway, which is that this playoff formula doesn't work. And that's something that I have believed for a very long time since before they even got to the playoffs last season. Where I maybe disagree is when you say that they should throw the ball more, I don't know if that's true. I think the problem is not how they're approaching this. I think it is literally with the way their talent is constructed. And it's because of Lamar. They're in such a weird spot because they have a Super Bowl defense. They have a former MVP quarterback. They have the best rushing attack in football. I mean, the numbers that they put up on the ground, over 3,000 yards, 24 touchdowns, five and a half yards per carry. All of these things point to, okay, this team should be a contender, but I think we all know that when it comes down to it, Lamar is not that elite throwing quarterback, and there's nothing they can really do about that. You can look to the weapons a little bit maybe and say, okay, Mark Andrews and Hollywood Brown is your top two targets. You can probably upgrade there. I like what you said about going and getting him those big guys who we can just throw jump balls up to, but I don't know if that fundamentally changes this team. I think that that would be a good move, but at the end of the day... I think this is kind of just what the Ravens are going to be for the next decade. I feel like they're just going to be a really good regular season team, especially if they can sustain this defense. But winning a Super Bowl is going to be incredibly difficult with Lamar as your quarterback. And that's obviously not some terrible flaw of Lamar's to be able to win an MVP, to be able to lead a team to great success in any capacity is an incredible accomplishment. But I think that there's just a distinction to be made between him and the truly great guys at this position who don't have that same limitation. But I don't think that trying to make Lamar do what he's not as good at, that being throwing more than posing the threat that he does with his feet, I don't think that helps them. I just think they're stuck. I really think that there's nothing they can do. I wish I could offer a more productive solution, but they're just in such a strange spot that doesn't compare to anywhere else in football right now. Okay, last team here, sticking in the AFC North, the Cleveland Browns, who maybe we didn't expect to be in the last eight this season. What should their takeaway be? My takeaway for the Cleveland Browns is that you need to trade Odell Beckham Jr. And the reason I think that is, first, he was kind of a locker room distraction. He's always kind of been. At the start of the year, we heard all this drama with Cleveland. After he went out with his injury, there was a little bit of harmony in the locker room. That's not the biggest issue, though. The biggest issue is that Baker Mayfield was better with Odell off the field. Now, I can attribute that to the running game, but honestly, I think this Cleveland Browns offense works better when there's just not as many go-to targets. Baker was forcing passes to Odell when he was on the field because he wanted his touches. And that's just not how this offense works. It's better at getting naturally guys open using the play-action rushing attack. Here's the numbers. Nine games without Odell, 2,000 yards, 11 touchdowns. Oh, excuse me. 1,171 yards, 11 touchdowns, one interception. Seven games with Odell, 1,300 yards, 15 touchdowns, seven picks. That's six more picks with Odell on the field because Baker was forcing those passes. And not even that, Odell has gotten worse every year in his career. His yards per game has dropped every year since his rookie season, except his last year in New York. The two last seasons in Cleveland, including this one, obviously a shortened season, have been the two lowest yards per game marks of his career. But the biggest issue, Odell is not available. His injury history is deeply concerning with wideouts because he can't stay on the field. He had a hamstring injury his rookie season, a high ankle sprain in 2017, followed by a full fracture of that ankle. And now he's recovering from a torn ACL. Like, I don't think I'm out of the realm of realness by saying that Odell is going to have lost a little bit of a step, a, lo- a loss of a little bit of quickness. And honestly, I don't think Cleveland needs another wideout. Jarvis was getting his touches. Austin Hooper was getting open. These backup wideouts are playing better. It, again, it's just better to let these little slot guys get open than having to force passes to Odell. I think that they need so much help defensively. You trade Odell for a first, a second, a defensive asset, something, because you don't need more firepower on offense. You need something on the back end on defense. That's what Cleveland is clearly lacking. They just, Odell is expendable. Here's where I disagree. Not with the idea that Odell is expendable. With the idea that anyone would actually give up value for Odell at this point. You're talking about his availability. The guy obviously has had such tremendous health problems. He hasn't had a 1,100-yard season in five years. He hasn't had more than six touchdowns in a season in five years. So... I would rather personally take the gamble of having him on this roster and think, okay, when he's healthy, he can be a game changer, than say, we'll give him up for a fourth rounder. I really don't think his value is much more than that. No way you're getting a first. I don't think you're getting a second. And I would rather say, okay, the best version of healthy Odell is worth us trying to keep in our organization versus taking... 50 cents on the dollar for what he could theoretically be in his best version. You genuinely don't think he would pull anything more than a fourth? Maybe a third. I don't think you're going to get a first or second round pick for Odell right now. As tantalizing as the talent may be, 
just with the way that obviously NFL draft picks are so highly valued, I don't think many people are investing in such an uncertain commodity right now. So I think it's an interesting take. And I agree with you in some ways that he doesn't necessarily, this offense doesn't need him, but I just don't know how many teams out there are going to look at him and say, oh, that's Odell Beckham Jr. Because the name brand, that value has worn off so quickly. I do still think he's a really good receiver when he's healthy and available, but I don't think he's going to command that kind of value. My takeaway for the Browns is really just that this was an incredibly impressive playoff run. And obviously the Steelers game, there was some exceptionally poor play from the other end, but for them to actually go out there and compete against the Chiefs, and I know that you're going up against Chad Henney, but to hold them to 22 points, I thought that was an impressive stand from the defense. I thought they forced a big turnover, and yes, Henney made a bad decision, but you know what? That's kind of how this defense survived this year, by forcing turnovers when they needed to, and offensively, you only put up 17 points, but man, did you move the ball on this Chiefs defense, so to actually be competitive with them and in a spot where you reasonably could have won this game, that's really impressive, and Maybe without some coaching gaffes by Stefanski, without a brutal fumble into the end zone, the Browns win this game. So for a team that we looked at throughout much of the season and said their defense is way too bad for them to go out there and win a playoff game or two, their point differential was negative this season, and they played a softball schedule, none of these things pointed to them being competitive in any capacity against the Kansas City Chiefs. So... I don't know what their future holds. I still hold many of the same concerns about the defense, but I think that this offense is proven. I think that Baker is proven at this point. This run game is going to propel this team to the playoffs for a long time. And more than just anything for the future, they should be proud of what they did because they actually hung in there against the behemoth of this era. And that is commendable. Okay, so before we get into talking about the upcoming conference championship games, let's do one of our favorite segments here of course, award tour, Logan, where we hand out awards to the most deserving candidates. Let's start with you. What's your first award? The award I'm handing out is the, uh, the Philip Rivers Award. Philip, to only focus on all of your playoff and end-of-season shortcomings in this segment would simply be a discredit to what you did on the football field. My mom didn't raise me to be a disrespectful young man, and frankly, I've disrespected you a lot, Philip Rivers. So first and foremost, I'd like to apologize, Philip. You were always reliable and consistent. You had the second most consecutive starts in NFL history with 252. The second most 4,000-yard seasons in NFL history, only to Peyton Manning with 12. The fifth most passing touchdowns in NFL history and the fifth most passing yards in NFL history. The sixth most 30 touchdown seasons in NFL history. And he led the league in passing touchdowns in 2008. You never thought the game was over with Phil either when he was out there on the last drive. He had the 10th most comebacks in NFL history and the 12th most game-winning drives. Yeah, but I said I only focus on them. So, Phil, I am going to take a dump real quick on you in your playoff career. Five and seven career in the playoffs, 59% completion. Dude just really didn't show up for the big games. But I will say, Pro Football Reference does this thing where they compare players that had similar careers. And here are some of the names on that list, Carson. Brett Favre, John Elway, Dan Marino. I may not always put him in the same pantheon of these quarterbacks because of his lack of playoff success, but... Phillip was always reliable on any given Sunday. You could rely on him to put up yardage and keep you in a ball game. So, Phillip, you are not one of the greatest quarterbacks in the NFL history in my eyes, but you are top 20, top 15, and I think I've, I think I've hated on you for a little too long. So for that, Phillip, I apologize. Whoa, that's not what I saw coming at all when I heard the Phillip Rivers Award. I thought that maybe we were going to get some more of the playoff stats, 16 touchdowns and 10 interceptions, but you know what, Logan? Props to you for giving credit where it's due because this is a time for celebration. And Philip, doggummit, you were a good football player and uh, you won a lot of games. I thought that there was going to be maybe some talk about wasting the primes of some very talented offensive players. You didn't put it in there. And you know what? I like that. So we'll end award tour with that. That's the only award for this show, the Philip Rivers Award to a deserving candidate. Enjoy retirement. Enjoy coaching prep football, Philip. And I think that we really just saw bygones be bygones. And it was a beautiful moment here on Nerd Sesh. Okay, so now let's move on to the main course of this episode. Let's talk about the conference championship games. Let's start with the AFC one. It is to me the more exciting of the two between what I think are the two best teams in football. But let's start with, I guess, the underdog, not the underdog to either of us necessarily. They've been our pick for quite some time. But for the Bills, what are two keys to the game for them against the Chiefs? Let's start with just your first one. So first, I think they have to attack the secondary early and finish drives. And the Bills have been exceptional at that. 73% pass rate on all offensive plays over the past two weeks. That's higher than any other teams. And on early downs, Buffalo is sixth in pass play percentage and second in yards per attempt. 
and first and first downs in their win streak. They've literally been the best offensive football over this win streak. And guess what? In that same time span, the Chiefs defense has been one of the worst. 20th in pass yards per attempt, 27th in first downs allowed. As this Bills offense has continued to get hotter and hotter, this Chiefs defense has just fallen off and gotten colder and colder. Now, the Bills couldn't even capitalize on the biggest issue with the Chiefs defense in their first matchup. They only had two plays in the red zone and the Chiefs red zone stats this year. They're literally the worst red zone defense in football. Opposing quarterbacks have a completion percentage of 80% in the red zone against the Chiefs. And guess what? The Browns scored on every uh, red zone possession they had. And, you know, I'm even counting the Jarvis Landry one because they almost got in on that one. So that is an issue that the Bills will have to attack in this game. And guess what? Josh Allen has the second most red zone touchdowns in the NFL this season, only to Aaron Rodgers. If the Bills have opportunities in the red zone, they will win this game. This this Chiefs defense has things that are exploitable. Okay, so this is interesting because you talk about attacking the secondary. My key for the Bills offense is do not force the run. And the reason I say this is I've heard a lot of people talking about the lack of a Bills rushing attack. They were 20th in football this year. I think sometimes it's made out to be more than it really was. But we know that this is not an overwhelmingly reliable rushing attack. And the Chiefs run defense isn't great necessarily, although last year it stepped up in the biggest moments, not necessarily as strong this year. So I feel like there might be a temptation to try to attack that a little bit, but I think that you can abandon the run game and still win this football game because the run offense has never been essential to the Bills this year. They're seven and three in games. They go under 100 rushing yards. And yes, I know what you're thinking. That means they're undefeated in games when they go over, but under 100 is a pretty small number in the modern NFL. And I think that any predictability of people just expecting the pass over and over again if you do abandon the run is outweighed by the magic of Josh Allen and the just inherent unpredictability of the way he plays football for a defense, the brilliance of these receivers who seem to constantly be open, and just the creativity of this play calling, the fact that it could be a trick play at any moment, and the route trees down to down are just really impressive. Guys get open all the time, and they often get open quickly. So that's why I do think you should really be pass heavy in this game. And I am cool with testing the waters early as far as the run game. Go out and put some feelers out, see if you're having any success, but I don't really want to see very many consecutive runs at all, and I don't want to see them trying to force Josh Allen runs either because we saw that a little bit in the Colts game, and I think that maybe in certain short situations in the red zone that makes sense. Outside of that, don't run Josh Allen on first down. That's ridiculous. It's just not worth it, and I don't really see the upside there. And the reason that I think they shouldn't try to force the run at all is And I'm talking about even, you know, early in the game, you run the ball first and second down, and then all of a sudden you're in a third and long and you don't get it. I don't want to see them put themselves in those positions because every possession matters against the Chiefs. Every single possession matters. And you can't waste time trying stuff that you're not good at. And the Bills are just not that good at running the football on the season. So I think even in third and shorts, you can go for some Chiefs-esque quick passes. You can spread things out for Josh runs. But really, the run game is a bonus to me. If it's going, if they're having success on the ground, this team will be damn near unstoppable, but it may be that the run game just doesn't work. And if it's not working early, don't try to force it and play to your strengths. Do what you're best at time and again, because I really don't think that the predictability is a factor because the passing game is still so unpredictable within itself. There are so many guys you can spread the ball to. Josh can do so much outside the pocket, off time, off schedule, that I don't think that that's really a significant factor. I think this is a perfect key to the game because it's exactly what happened for this offense against the Ravens. The Bills literally did not attempt the Devin Singletary run until three minutes left in the second quarter. Like, it's been their key to success all uh, season long. I don't get why people think the running game is so imperative to the Bills winning. The most important factor for this Bills offense is just simply keeping up with the Chiefs offense, which is what they're well-equipped to do. As long as they pass the ball as much as possible, in my opinion. So again, if the run game's working, great. It's a bonus. But I think that Dable understands this personnel well enough to say, okay, we're not going to try to run the ball a bunch early, and I really don't think that they should. Okay, let's flip to the second Bills key. What do you think it is? The second Bills key is do your best to X out Travis Kelsey. And again, this is a tall ask of the Bills' defense because... Kelsey's one of the greatest tight ends of all time, but the Bills allowed the most catches to tight ends this season with 92 and the second most yards to opposing tight ends this season. Uh, They allowed Mike Jasicki to go for 13-177 and a touchdown in two matchups, Darren Waller to go for 9 and 88, 
and Noah Fant, 868 and a touchdown. And in their first matchup, Kelsey went for five catches, 65 yards, and two touchdowns. But more importantly, Travis Kelsey is Patrick Mahomes' go-to target on third down, which is what the Bills need to do. They've been a bend-don't-break defense all season long, so you need to get them off the field on third down. Now, again, when I say that you need to X out Travis Kelsey, it is a tall ask with all of these other weapons that Patrick Mahomes has at his disposal. Tyree Kill, Mecole Hardman. But guess what? The Bills' secondary has a better... They have better personnel to match up with these big play targets than anybody else. The Bills love dropping two high safeties and Trey White. They're the best cover three team in football, in my opinion. So I'm not concerned about what they're doing on the back half of that field. I know that they have personnel to shut those guys down. What they need to focus on is staying in the middle of the field and getting Milano, Klein, or Edmonds to stick on Kelsey on those third and shorts, those third and fives, because those are what are going to be crucial in this football game. Getting Patrick Mahomes off the field on third down and getting them to punt, because Kelsey will tear this defense up if they don't make any adjustments because of how bad they have been against tight ends all season long. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting matchup because I saw a stat about how in his four previous career games against the Bills, Kelsey has actually never gone over 70 yards. Now, I do think that that's probably a little bit fluky, and I do think that the key here is who spends most of their time dedicated to Kelsey because I think it's either going to be Tremaine Edmonds or Matt Milano. And although Milano is the much better linebacker in coverage, he's also six feet tall, whereas Edmonds physically can go toe-to-toe with Kelsey as far as quickness, as far as size and strength. So I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting to see who is tasked with the majority of the responsibilities there, but my key is in some ways similar. It's something that we've talked about time and again when it comes to this matchup. The Bills need to get pressure with four, and this has been a key that we've highlighted from weeks earlier. I think that you highlighted towards the beginning of the season either, even. This team blitzed at the eighth highest rate in football this season. Now, it doesn't feel like they're an insanely blitz-heavy defense, so I think it's reasonable to expect that they can tone that down against KC, and they probably will because you talk about the loaded secondary, throw Milano in there as well. You want all these guys in coverage as much as possible, and even Tremaine, who has not been great in coverage, he's not much of a pass rusher either, and he hasn't really imposed much of a threat to quarterbacks when he does blitz. So I say just keep these guys in coverage and Try to go toe-to-toe with these weapons because we know what they're capable of. On the season, quarterbacks have thrown just 25 touchdowns to 16 picks versus the Bills. Last year, it was 16 touchdowns to 14 picks. So, trust the pass defense, and this pass rush has been up and down, but I don't think sending your linebackers, none of whom are particularly prone or uh, excellent at blitzing, I don't think that that does you a service when really blitzing Patrick Mahomes is a disaster almost every time, and I think that that is the key here is he's going to punish you and Teams try to do it just because they lose hope doing all else, but I don't want to see the Bills in that desperation mode, and I do not think that's a successful formula for them. I do want to say one more thing, and I don't think that this is a perfect stat, but it is an interesting one. When Matt Milano plays this year, the Bills are 12-0, they allow 18.6 yards per game, and quarterbacks have thrown just 14 touchdowns to 10 interceptions. So, Milano, I think, does change this Bills defense. He's not some all-pro player, but he is certainly better than he gets credit for, and he's one of the best players on this defense, both in coverage and in the run game. And if I'm going to pick one linebacker to get after the quarterback, it's going to be Milano. So, Something to watch for when we talk about maybe some of the flaws with this Bills defense is when they've been fully healthy, they've been a lot better than they were when they did not have Milano. Okay, let's move on to the flip side of this with the Kansas City Chiefs. What's the first key to them to winning this football game? So two things, and they both pertain to the coverages that they are going to play on this Bills wide receiving core. First off, don't press and do not play zone coverage. In their first matchup, Josh Allen had a season-low 122 yards and 52% completion percentage, but I think the rain in that game affected Allen in the passing game more than anyone really gives credit for. Chiefs fans will argue that nothing needs to be changed, and they're going to dominate Allen most again, uh, again, but the Chiefs ran the seventh most man coverage plays this season, and Allen ate it up. He had the second most touchdowns this season against man coverage with 19, and he had the third highest passer rating against man coverage. As for pressing and why the Chiefs should not press the Bills wideouts, Diggs had the most catches and big plays against press coverage this season. Pretty self-explanatory. If you want to lose to Josh Allen and the Bills, go ahead, press them, play man coverage. Brian Dable will torch you. He will run all kinds of crossing routes and all kinds of patterns, and they're going to burn you. Do not press them. Switch to more zone coverage. Again, this is not a perfect strategy because I don't think there's a perfect strategy you can play against Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes. They're the two best quarterbacks in football, but it is going to be a nightmare if you try to go and play these guys one-on-one. Yeah, I think that's probably the right call. And again, it's like you said, 
I don't know that there's anything you can do that is a guarantee to take away any of the potency from this offense. I think we've seen Josh find success against zone a lot throughout the season, but it's pick your poison, and I think that you have probably picked the right poison there. My key for the Chiefs is a little more simple, and it's actually something that you touched on earlier. They just need to survive on third downs and in the red zone. And I'm talking about on the defensive end here because they were the 17th best third down defense in football. Bills were the best third down offense. They were the 32nd red zone defense, dead last, as you said. And Josh is a red zone machine. Also, the Bills, this is on a much smaller sample size, but they were the best fourth down offense in football this year. So you're kind of up against an unguardable group. And this whole defense needs to be strong. And I think that they need to play at a level that we haven't seen from them all that often this season. But it's going to come down to the make or break moments for both these teams. And it's probably just going to be getting a stop in the red zone or on third down multiple times, or maybe even forcing a turnover, which is another reason why I've said that I prefer the Bills defense in this matchup. They do that much more proficiently than the Chiefs, but I don't think that they're going to have some formula that leads them to actually stopping the Bills. It's going to come down to playing their best in the biggest moments. And yes, that's pretty much always true if you're trying to win a football game, but it feels particularly notable right now going up against such a high-powered offense with a defense that has been so questionable in those crucial spots specifically. Let's flip to the other side of the ball now, where it's always tough to tell the Chiefs how to play, but what is your second key for them? My key is take what the Bills' defense gives you, and what I mean by that is uh, the first matchup that the Bills played, they were dropping uh, their both their safeties like 30, 20 yards downfield, and the Chiefs had a field day running the football. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had uh, ran the ball 26 times for 161 yards, and I mean, they killed their two high safeties. First of all, the Bills can't do that if they want to win this game. The Chiefs are going to pick that apart. Whatever they give you, if they run those two high safety sets, you pick them apart, you run crosses, and you run drag routes, or you just hand it off to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire like you did last time. Or if they give you that set that they ran against the Ravens, which I think actually might benefit the Bills a little more because it takes away the middle of the field for Patrick Mahomes. Those four linebacker sets, Patrick literally can't throw it anywhere in the middle of the field because a linebacker is going to get it. If you're rushing four and then dropping four, it's a perfect set against Patrick Mahomes. And then you can run cover three up high. Personally, I think that's the best defense for the Chiefs, uh, for the Bills against them. So whatever they give you, if they run that four linebacker set, you try to take them deep down the middle of the field with seam routes. If they run or two high safeties, you just hand the ball off. This Chiefs offense is so proficient. It's like you said, don't try to do too much. You just take what the Bills defense gives you because I think pound for pound, the Chiefs offense is clearly better than the Bills defense. You just nickel and dime, you take what they give you. I agree with this completely. And in fact, it totally ties into my key, which is try to find the run game. And that's not essential. Like I said, it's not essential for the Bills. It's not essential for the Chiefs because with a below average run game, they have been maybe the best offense in football this season. And if you're coming down to picking one in one game, you're probably taking the Chiefs unless you're crazy. But as you touched on, I expect this Bills defense to be spread pretty wide. I think that they expect them to obviously be fearing the pass the entire time and dedicated to stopping that. And this Bills run defense has been up and down this season. It was good, then it was bad, then it was good. And now over their last five games, they've allowed 140 plus yards. So obviously, it's Patrick Mahomes with these weapons. You're going to be throwing the football first. It doesn't matter who's on the other side of the field, even if it is a really good pass defense and a really good secondary. But I do think that you're going to have a lot of opportunities to run the ball, maybe out of shotgun sets, a lot of stuff like that. And if you're going to try to attack something in this defense, it should be the Bills run defense. And I think that, again, it's not essential, but it could be a big key in just making this game even easier on them. And then it opens up everything else, play action, all that stuff. And I also agree with you though, the underneath passing game may be key in this game as well, because I don't know how much you're getting deep downfield. If that's what they give you, fantastic. I don't think we're going to see very much of that. So I think it's probably going to be a lot of relatively methodical drives downfield. And that's partly the Bills identity. They want to bend, not break. And if they don't let up that one big play, they give themselves a better chance to do that. So let's now have a brief little open discussion about this game, because this has been one that we've anticipating for quite some time. Again, you picked before the season the Bills to win the Super Bowl. I picked before the playoffs along with you the Bills to win the Super Bowl. So beyond just the keys to the game, what's your prediction here and how do you see this all going down? I mean, this is going to be a close game down to the wire. Honestly, it may be one of those games that whoever has the ball last wins this game. I'm not switching up on my squad. I've been with them all season long. I'm going to take the Bills 31-28. I called it like before the season started. Uh, I'm not switching up. I think the Bills are the best team in football. We have basically identical predictions. I have the Bills winning 30-27. to And I talk about this every time, but the terror of picking against Patrick Mahomes is not lost on me. Assuming that he plays, it seems like he's certainly trending towards playing right now. And I can't imagine he'll be very affected by a concussion a week out at this point. But it's scary 
but I think you have the more all-round, well-rounded team on one end, and the only real reason that I can imagine this not even being highly competitive is if maybe Josh just has a clunker, which I have no reason to expect. He's been incredibly consistent. Last week was one of his worst weeks of football and still didn't turn the ball over, going up against an elite defense and did what the team needed for him to win while carrying the offense without any semblance of a run game. And this defense does not compare to that Ravens defense. It doesn't compare to the Colts defense. So I expect Josh to have a big game and I expect Diggs to have a big game, and I expect this defense to come up with a crucial stop or two when they need it, maybe even force a turnover against the immortal Patrick Mahomes. Okay, so there it is. We both have the Bills winning, and we are sticking with our predictions there. Let's now move on to the NFC, where we have Bucks Packers, of course. Let's start with the underdog Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What's your first key for them? So my first key is to rush for on Rodgers. Now, this may sound crazy because of how this Buccaneers team hounded Rodgers in their last game. He was pressured on 44% of his dropbacks against the Bucs. He was blitzed on 53% of his dropbacks, both highest marks of the season. And he went 6 of 17 versus the Blitz in that game. But since then, Rodgers has the second highest passer rating against the Blitz, and the Packers' offensive line has kept him clean. The Buccaneers' pass rush is still pretty dominant, but it has fallen off a little bit on the second half of the season. I just think... I genuinely believe that first game with the Packers was a fluke. I don't think that you can pressure Rodgers like that again. I mean, the Bucs certainly might try. I just don't think it's a recipe for success. I think if they keep him upright, that that Rodgers is going to pick apart this blitz. And this offensive line has been so much better. If you get pressure with four... I think that's the key. If Sue can get pressure, if Pierre Paul can get back there, like I think they have the personnel. I think it's more important that you don't rush these linebackers like Levante David. I would keep Von, uh, Levante back for the rushing defense against Jones. I would keep Devin White in pass coverage with how proficient he looked against Drew Brees. I mean, he he killed Brees. He, like, he hid back there in coverage. I think it is so much more important to play against pass coverage and drop back than blitzing Rodgers because I think it is a recipe to lose you this football game if you are bringing the house all game long. I'm sorry. So when you say rush four, you're saying they should not be blitzing Shaq Barrett in this game. I'm saying that they should, like, I'm not saying that they should completely go away from the blitz. You should blitz certain times. But if you were bringing the house like you did in that first matchup, you're going to lose. This is hilarious because I have literally the exact opposite key. I have three words written down. Bring the thunder. And here's why. You have to gamble. I don't want this secondary matching up against these weapons without having just the chance at making Rodgers uncomfortable. And Barrett and White, they were both top 10 in blitz percentage this season. Barrett led the league in hurries. He was fifth in pressures. He's a pass rusher that what he does. I don't want him in coverage. I want him bringing the thunder. And this team as a whole had the fifth highest blitz percentage in football. And accordingly, this pass rush was great. They were fourth in hurries, third in pressure percentage, fourth in sacks. It's what they do. Don't change who you are. And I think up against one of the best O-lines in football, you need that extra punch. You're not going to win a lot of one-on-one battles against this O-line, so make them a little uncomfortable. Yes, they're exceptional, but do what you're best at, and that is blitzing the hell out of people. And Rodgers, you talk about how good he's been against the blitz, against the blitz since then. He's 15 touchdowns to three interceptions against the Blitz on the season. Two of those interceptions came against the Bucks. That's fantastic. You know what he is not against the Blitz, though? 32, 33 touchdowns to two interceptions. It's Aaron Rodgers. He was almost perfect this season. And yeah, he was great against the Blitz. He was great against everything. The only time we've seen him look human, though, has been against the Blitz even if he's excelled ever since then. And the only other time Rodgers faced real overwhelming pressure for the majority of a game was against the Panthers when he was sacked five times and he was just 20 for 29 with 143 yards and one touchdown. He did have a touchdown on the ground as well, but that was his second worst game of the season and it was the second most pressure he's faced this season. So we also know that if you're making him, if you're putting him in these spots where he's uncomfortable, where he's under pressure, he's more likely to turn the ball over. And when the Packers turn the ball over just once, they're three and three on the season because they're generally so great at taking away the football. So or excuse me, at keeping the other team from taking away the football from them. And also, of course, you have the best run defense in football in Tampa. So if you're able to take that away from them, then you make the play action harder where Rodgers has absolutely excelled this season. And now everything is just going your way. So to me, I'm not going to trust this young secondary without taking some gambles. And you talk about how you're going to lose if you play this way, maybe. But if you play the Packers straight up and conservative, you're almost certain to lose, in my opinion. Take a chance, play to your strengths, and do the only thing that has made Rodgers look human for even a second this year. Well, and you touched on why I'm saying don't bring the blitz. Everybody's been harping on how bad this, or not how bad, but how young this secondary is. I think this secondary has really come of age in this back half of the season. Like, I think that, I think people are harping on that side of the, that back half of the secondary a little too much. I think that 
they're better than, than what people think they are. I think that they can guard Devontae Adams. I think that they can take out Robert Tunyon. What they did to the Saints really impressed me. I think that I think that if Rodgers picks on this secondary, they come away with an interception or two, and it's smarter. I know it's counterintuitive. I know that I should trust this Bucks blitz a little more, but honestly, I'm going to trust the secondary a little more than the blitz. Just to me, with what I have seen from Rodgers this season where he just looks like a surgeon out there, comfortably standing upright in the pocket, dissecting people, take a chance. Take a chance on making him uncomfortable. It's the only thing that makes sense, and the Rams weren't able to do it this past week. I think that the Bucks, maybe they won't be able to, but... You talk about how the first game was a fluke. Obviously, it was a fluke to the extent that it went right. But I don't think that I don't think that the idea that blitzing him is the best way to approach him. I don't think that was a fluke, even though he's been great against it since. Because again, he's been great against literally everything. He's Aaron Rodgers. Okay, so we disagree completely on that end, and it'll be interesting to see how the Bucks actually play it. Let's look at the other side of the ball now. What should the Bucks be doing to go out there and win this game? Uh, the next thing the Bucks need to do is get the running game going and keep the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands. Arians heeded my advice last week because he ran the ball a combined 30 times between Fournette and Jones, and he ran the balls 34 times in their first matchup versus the Packers. Both games opened up a complete other dimension of the Bucks' passing game, the play-action passing attack, and that is when this Bucks offense is at its best. You could argue that it's when every offense is at its best, but this Bucks offense with all their weapons, I mean, Brady was just... He only threw for 199 yards against the Saints, but he made it look good. This, when the play-action passing attack is going, I think this Bucks offense is unstoppable. And running the ball effectively keeps the ball out of the Packers' offense hands as well, which is always necessary. Even more so, the Packers' offense is really susceptible to getting ran on. They have the 15th-ranked rushing defense this year, and they've allowed 11 teams to rush for over 100 yards, and they allowed the Rams last week to rush for 96. So, I think you have to play a little bit of time of possession game against the Green Bay Packers as you do. You don't want Rodgers to have the ball in his hands. And I honestly think that this is a fair, this is a good matchup for the Bucs because of how bad this Packers run defense has been all season long. So run it down their throats like you did against the Ram, uh, excuse me, against the Saints and like you did in this first matchup against the Packers. Um, and I think it will lead to success. Yeah, it's interesting because this Bucks rushing attack has been hot and cold this season, but I agree with you. If they get that going, it makes everything easier. It makes this offense more quick hitting and just opens more doors. Like, as you said, it kind of does for everyone. My key for them is spread the wealth and don't throw at Jair Alexander. And I guess that this can be true the second part for basically every team because obviously he's been exceptional this year. People are completing 51% of their passes against him, only thrown two touchdowns on the season. But the reason I emphasize is because the Bucs don't have to throw at him. They have four legit receiving weapons on this roster, and the A-B loss hurts there. I, he has been arguably, in my opinion, their best receiver down the stretch this season and the team that the guy that teams should be fearing most. But regardless, the Packers can't cover everyone. And these guys get open. They get open consistently. I think it's going to be interesting. This might be a big Gronk game, in my opinion. We'll see what he can do. But take what they give you and... That just means throwing to the open man every time. Brady's been good at that all season long, and I don't think that that changes here. Don't ever try to force feed anyone. It'll be interesting to see if Alexander travels with, I, I don't know if it would be Evans or Godwin. He hasn't over the latter half of the season. He's stayed on the left side, and I don't know. We'll, we'll see how he approaches it in this game when it matters most. But I also think a second key for this game for the Bucks on the offensive end is it's always a key. I've said it multiple times for this team, but protect Brady because the Packers pass rush doesn't terrify me, but this is always true. If Brady is under pressure this season, he's not nearly the same quarterback. He's more liable to force turnovers. He's going to miss some more throws and that has to always be priority number one. But I think you spread the wealth and you don't throw out Jair Alexander. Okay, let's look now at the Packers who have been really just a machine over the past however many weeks of football bowling over a bunch of teams what is the first key for them that stands out to you in this game? I think you just hit it on the head with what you said about Brady. I think you go full Dick LeBeau and you go zone blitz 3-4 on these guys. Blitz Brady all game and go full zone. Press their receivers. Just make life difficult because I think when you make Brady uncomfortable, when you get him to, when, when you force him to throw the ball within three seconds, force, when he doesn't want to, it is the best. It is when Brady is at his worst, when he's going to throw a pick six, when he's going to throw up a duck, when you are getting pressure in his face. Uh, against man coverage this season, Brady threw 18 touchdowns and four picks. Against zone, 11 touchdowns to six interceptions. And, well, the Packers have one of the best zone uh, defenses in football. The second thing I want to focus on with this defense, with defensive keys for the Packers is just 
don't allow the big play. And I think that's pretty easy to say with Alexander on that back half of the secondary. And the Packers defense, I believe, was fifth best against big plays. They just don't allow them to happen. Brady has been throwing the ball deeper and deeper downfield in this back half of the season. has opened up a, a different dimension of this Buccaneers offense to the play-action attack, to the short passing game that he's always been known for when he's throwing it downfield. Make him uncomfortable. Don't allow the big play and switch to zone. And it, as long as this Packers defense is getting in Brady's face, I don't think this should be too tough a game on them. We have complete agreement here. I have literally written down, make Brady uncomfortable. And maybe if you are a little bit more aggressive with maybe a zone blitz scheme, maybe you do give up some of the quick hitting underneath stuff, but you take away the deep ball for the most part, as you touched on, which has been one of the ways Brady has killed people this year. You open the door to force some more turnovers because you're making him uncomfortable. And obviously he's not going to be able to do anything on the move. He's not going to be able to extend plays whatsoever. So anytime he throws the ball away, that's a win for you. And maybe you put him enough of those positions. Then he starts to force it. It's uncharacteristic, but it is possible because he's going to have to try to go out there and win this team the game. So I think that that is the clear approach that the Packers should be taking as well. So we agree there on the other side of the ball. What do you think is the key for the Packers in this game? Well, I think they should not exclusively rely on the long passing game. You have to use methodical drives. And that was, I don't even think the pressure was the worst thing for Aaron Rodgers in that first game was the fact that as they started, as the Buccaneers started clawing ahead and getting ahead, the Packers didn't change anything up offensively. They were just like, all right, you know, Devontae, you go on a go route. We'll send everybody deep. No, you can't do that. When the blitz is coming, you got to get rid of stuff fast. And the Packers' long passing game killed them. You have to... Use quick hitting stuff against Tampa Bay if they bring the blitz and just stay underneath because that long passing game shot them in the foot. They weren't able to complete any passes because of the pressure he was facing. And again, if you get down in the red zone, you win. The Packers had the best red zone offense in football this season, and Tampa Bay allowed the second most red zone touchdowns, and they had the third highest percentage of red zone touchdowns this season. If Tampa Bay gets marched on, if you use methodical drives, they will lose this ball game. Aaron Rodgers will pick you apart. So we agree again. What I have specifically is establish the run. And last week ahead of their game against the Rams, when I expected to see one of the most imposing pass rushes in football come alive, I said, run the ball down their throats. And it obviously worked. They had 188 yards on the ground. And this week is a little different because they're going up against literally the best run defense in football in Tampa. But I think that it's still essential. And it has been all year to what this offense has done because it has been the long methodical drives, the run game, the play action, the underneath stuff. And specifically, if the Bucs are going to try to blitz the hell out of him, then it's a way to avoid turnovers. It's a way to get the ball out of Rodgers' hands quickly. And when you're not running the ball, you open up the quick passing game. You open up the play action because Rodgers this year, out of play action, is 21 touchdowns to zero interceptions. So to me, this offense does not get to the point that they're at without the run game excelling. It has been crucial to their success all year long. And I don't think this week is any different. If they don't have the run game, and if you are putting Rodgers in a position where he has to try to throw the ball downfield more or just throw the ball more predictably every single time, I think that's a massive win for the Bucs. And so that's why I think this is an interesting matchup as far as that defense, because I do think a lot of their strengths are favorable against specifically this Packers attack. But you're right. If they march down the field, if they get into the red zone, that is going to be trouble for anyone to stop. So now that we have all these keys laid out there, let's talk about this game, a little open discussion. What's your prediction? The keys that I've laid out lean towards Rodgers and the Packers winning this game, but I'm not picking against Tom in the playoffs. I think they're going to host the Super Bowl. I am taking the Buccaneers. It's going to be a really close game. I think that, honestly, I think this comes down to a game-winning drive at Lambeau by Brady. I'm going to take the Bucs 27-26. to 26. Okay, so this did not sound like you were going to pick the Bucs with the keys that you were laying out. Does it really just come down to trusting Brady more, or what are the other keys that favor them in your opinion? Well, honestly, this also has to do with I picked the Bucs midseason because I hedged my bets on that. Smart. I, you know, I called three out of the four teams in the conference championship games, and I picked the Bucs instead of the Saints midseason. So, you know, I was planning ahead. Um, I just kind of want to stick – I just want to stick with my predictions and be honest, but um, it has more to do with sticking with my predictions because – on paper, the pa it, this matchup favors the Packers heavily. I'm going to stick with my guns as well, and I'm going to take the Bucs. And I disagree with you a little bit. I think the Packers are the better football team. I think that matchup-wise, though, there are things here that favor the Bucs, and that's why I have had them picked for quite some time, even as I have thought that the Packers are probably the better football team. So I think that this is, our predictions are ridiculously similar. I will take the Bucks 27 to 24. So we are separated by a grand total of four points across our two predictions with the same victors in both. But this is going to be a great game. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and we'll see how Brady holds up 
in this biggest moment because this is a real chance for redemption for him. Last year, obviously, he crumbled in the moments when the Pats needed him most. And now with just a loaded supporting cast on the offensive end with a defense that at times has been brilliant, here he is in position to win it again. I'll ask you this, just more of a big picture question. Which quarterback do you think stands the most to gain from getting to the Super Bowl and then possibly winning the Super Bowl? Because we have four of the best in football, obviously, and a few real all-timers already. Out of all four of them? Yes. This is a good question. I'm not going to go with Brady. I think that if Brady loses this game, it's going to be looked upon like the Joe Montana, Kansas City Chiefs championship lost, already an accomplished quarterback. Uh, It doesn't really affect his legacy. Honestly, I think the quarterback with the most to gain, not Mahomes, Mahomes already done it. I would say Rodgers or Allen. Rodgers at this point in his career, to distinguish himself from other greats like Brett Favre, Drew Brees, that second Super Bowl is so key to knocking you up another notch. So I would say Rodgers, but Josh Allen is also in that conversation as well, just because this is the biggest game of a Bills fan's lifetime, of Bills fans across the planet, of Bills players across the planet. This is the biggest game in, honestly, in the history of Buffalo for a long time. So I would say Allen or Rodgers, honestly, probably Allen, just because that first Super Bowl means a little more. But those are my top two. What about you? Part of what I love about this remaining group is we have some incredible quarterbacks. And I think that when you compare that to some of the past few years where we have a Case Keenum and a Blake Bortles in different championship games, and even last year, Jimmy G, where there's not really an all-time legacy on the line, All of these guys, in my opinion, will go down as all-timers. And three of them are already locks to have done that. I think Josh Allen is on that trajectory. I'm going to have to go with Rodgers because I think that if there is one knock on an otherwise perfect football resume for him, basically, it is the one Super Bowl. And I think that now he is in position to go out there and win another one, potentially. I also think, though, Mahomes being the first guy to repeat in however long, that would be really significant. I think it sends the Pats and... 0304. So that's a very long time. And then of course, Brady to me is also, I think you can make an argument for any of them. Mahomes would be the toughest, but to win a seventh, to get to a 10th and to do it in a second location at 43 years old, if there's anybody still lingering on to any argument for anyone else as the greatest quarterback of all time, or even maybe football player of all time, I still think there's a strong Jerry Rice case to be made. If you're taking out the value of positions, just because proportionately, you know, he's one and a half times what everybody else is in all the all-time receiving categories. But this would just elevate Brady to another level. And then Josh, it's not just doing it for the city of Buffalo. It's being the disruptor, coming in and upsetting first this Chiefs dynasty. If he were theoretically to do it, you're going up against one of the greatest juggernauts in football. And then on the other hand, beating one of the top five quarterbacks of all time, if it's Brady or Rodgers, when I assume that the Packers would be favored by most people in that matchup. The Bucs, maybe not, but it's always Brady. There's just a mystique around that. And when people look back on that, they'll say, you beat Tom Brady when he was in his 10th Super Bowl of his career. So I think everybody stands to gain so much for their individual legacies here. I will go Rodgers, though, just because it's been a while since he's been there, and it would be a massive, massive moment for his legacy. And then, I don't know, maybe there are some people who would argue that he's top three all time. And I certainly don't think that would be crazy. I'm sure there are people who already do argue that because of his statistical resume, but I think that case would be bolstered. Yeah. And I think especially what you touched on against the Chiefs, this is a team that you called what the greatest team of the century. Yes. Up to this point, there was a point when I said they were, and I think that if they win this Super Bowl, they probably are. Yeah. And I mean, this is just a huge game legacy wise for Josh Allen, because you are, you're slaying the dragon that nobody's slain. Yeah. And we will see if the Chiefs can do it again. Mahomes is maybe on the greatest three-year stretch in football history. And I openly will say that I think that he is absolutely on track to be the greatest football player of all time. And that's the group that we're dealing with right now. The current greatest quarterback, in my opinion, the current greatest quarterback of all time in Tom Brady, the guy who before Mahomes, everybody said was the most talented quarterback of all time in Aaron Rodgers. And now the new most talented quarterback of all time in Patrick Mahomes. And it's all coming together and Josh Allen. And the new most talented quarterback, Josh Allen. And a guy who is also a sort of mind-bending talent that is on par with a Rodgers and kind of a Mahomes, as on par with a Mahomes as you can possibly be. So that is all at stake here over these next few weeks. And of course, we will dive into this more once we actually know who will be in the Super Bowl. But that's where we're thinking ahead of these games. So that will do it for us here today. Make sure to go out and check our previous 
episodes from this week. We did a trivia time this Monday in which we quizzed each other on NBA and NFL history. We did an NBA show this past Wednesday answering eight pressing questions in our mind. And now we are very excited to watch some football this weekend. You can go ahead and follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh. So that will do it. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.